The coronavirus has profoundly disrupted daily life throughout much of our world. And for those communities, healthcare providers, and people in recovery who are battling the opioid crisis, COVID-19 has only magnified their challenges. This is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. I hope you'll join us on June 25th for a live event to discuss the pandemic's impact on the opioid epidemic and the odds of recovery in America today. Joining me for this special event is the co-director of the Opioid Policy Research at Brandeis University, Dr. Andrew Kolodny. Also joining us is best-selling author of Dope Sick, Beth Macy, and the former White House aide and author of American Fix, Ryan Hampton. In the days leading up to next week's event, we're re-releasing our podcast with each of our guests, beginning today with episode 220, The Drug Company That Addicted America, Dope Sick with New York Times journalist and best-selling author Beth Macy. Late in 2018, Beth shared the story of how Virginia became the canary in the coal mine for the opioid epidemic in her five-part series with me. I hope you enjoy this re-release of our podcast with Beth Macy. Tomorrow, we'll revisit our discussion with former White House aide and author of American Fix, Ryan Hampton. And once again, we hope you can join us for our special live event on June 25th, as we break down the impact of the coronavirus on the opioid epidemic. Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23rd, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction. We were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil from Cover 2 Resources. Beth Macy's Dope Sick dealers, doctors, and the drug company that addicted America is a compelling account of the opioid epidemic in our country, profiling the 20-plus year history of the crisis as it emerged in her home state of Virginia. Beginning in 2012, Beth began reporting on the epidemic as it landed in the suburbs of Roanoke. Five years later, she finished writing Dopesick and the story of how Appalachia became the canary in the coal mine in our country for this unprecedented crisis was told. This is the first of our multi-part series on Dopesick, where we'll interview New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy. In our series, we'll examine how America's worst health crisis emerged from an economically vulnerable region and the drug company that exploited the misfortunes of a generation. You'll hear from the families, doctors, healthcare providers, and community leaders who tell their stories about the origin of the opioid epidemic in America. We begin our series with best-selling author Beth Macy. As we begin our conversation, Beth shared how writing Factory Man led her to pen a book about the opioid epidemic in her home state. Factory Man was about the aftermath of globalization, and it came out in 2014, but um, as I was finishing it up, the police and prosecutors and whatnot were telling me, you know, we're really seeing an uptick in heroin and in methamphetamine as well. And um, I didn't really put um, the story 
of Oxycontin and the early uh, days of the opioid pill epidemic together what was with what was happening with heroin there right away. I mean, I got that, I mean, there was a lot of crime being committed by people who were desperate, and I assumed they were just jobless people desperate to feed their families, but I didn't really get the concept of dope sickness yet. And I didn't really realize that heroin, you know, was the exact same, being addicted to heroin was the exact same as being addicted to the pills and that there was this big connection. Um, so, you know, the media was sort of slow to catch on. It came out a year or two years later that Martinsville, Virginia, where Factory Man was set, was actually the number one place per capita for opioid prescribing. So that was totally, you know, connecting all the, the dots on that. But at the time, people didn't really realize that. Of course, my colleagues have been reporting about, about Oxycontin abuse back in the mid-90s, in the late 90s, when it first started becoming known as an issue. I mean, it took it a while before it started making the regional media because crime had just skyrocketed there. And all of a sudden, the jails were full. People were committing crimes like burning down abandoned factories. And, you know, there was murder in little towns that had never had murders before. I mean, not every town had murder, but there was crime at a level um, never before seen in these communities, which is also happened to be where the coal mines were shutting down and the factories were closing. And um, that was due to people who were addicted to Oxycontin and were stealing things um, in order not to be dope sick. Part of this story is the economics of the region and the role that the distressed labor force and unemployment played in uh, Appalachia to uh, bring about this uh, really emergence of the crisis. So can you describe that a little bit? Sure. Well, what happened was when OxyContin came out in 1996, the company, Purdue Pharma, hired an army of sales reps to go out and to present the notion to doctors that um, this drug was better, it was less addictive. And the FDA, of course, let them make this squishy claim that it was believed to reduce the liability of abuse and addiction. And so they went out everywhere in the country, but they went armed with the information on which doctors in which communities were prescribing the most competing opioids. You may never have heard of it. But a company formerly known as IMS Health knows an awful lot about who prescribes your medications. IMS bought bulk data from pharmacy chains such as CVS and doctor's electronic systems such as Allscripts and claims from insurers such as Blue Cross and Blue Shield. And they sell that data from more than a half a billion patient dossiers, mainly to drug companies some who use it to direct their sales efforts at the doctors who prescribe the most opioids. Well, those tended to be in places like Appalachia where there had been historically um, high incidences of workplace injuries and also places like Machias, Maine, where they were logging and fishing, other places where you got hurt doing your work. 
and that was just natural. But the difference with OxyContin um, was that, uh, you know, they were pushing it really aggressively. And also it was a much higher dosage. So suddenly you had people, maybe people who had been um, able to take a lower strength, immediate release opioid before for an injured shoulder or back and, and get off of it when the course of the um, prescription was finished. But now with OxyContin, it was suddenly harder. And so then that really, once it got its hooks in them, you know, it uh, turned some people into non-functioning people. So disability played a big role in this. But unemployment and the economics also played a role, didn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I start out the book in Lee County, which is the westernmost county in Virginia, um, by talking about Dr. Van Z, who's just begging the company to take the pill off the market until it can be reformulated to be uh, resistant to abuse. And, you know, now if you look at those figures, I believe it's 58 percent of the working age men in that community are not employed. So the workforce participation rate is really, really low. During the late 1990s, oxycodone was sold on the street for up to $80 a pill in Appalachia. The drug's high rate of abuse among rural Appalachia earned it the nickname hillbilly heroin, with unemployment as high as 58 percent in some areas. Selling prescription pills to survive became common practice. So wherever you had high prescribing of opioids, um, those tended to be places where um, the workforce participation rate was going down. Early on, it becomes not just a way to sort of numb the pain and the psychic pain. And, you know, of course, once you're hooked, that's a whole nother story. But it also becomes a way for people to pay their bills. And so say you've gotten addicted genuinely through your doctor from uh, some sort of operation, you can't get off of it, and you some neighbor tells you, oh, if you start uh, crushing them and snorting them, it hits you better. Uh, you know, it uh, goes around that time release mechanism and you get it all in one euphoric rush. Um, but hey, guess what? Your neighbor just retired or got laid off because her factory closed. And she needs money and she has, you know, probably some legitimate back pain from standing on factory floors for 20 some years. And we're going to talk her out of go. We're going to talk her into going to her doctor and, um, you know, laying on a sad, sad, but believable sob story about back pain, which she may or may not have. But then we're going to share the pills and I'm going to pay her for the pills she gets, you know possibly for a dollar with a Medicaid card. So it, it, it did become, um, became kind of like the new moonshine in Appalachia. It was like a side hustle way to pay bills. The company said for years, we didn't, we didn't know about it until I think, Oh, one, they said, or maybe they said 2000, uh, early in the two thousands. And, but, yeah, I took me about a half an hour to find the first police officer down there who was seeing it being diverted. And he said, people were walking around town with green and orange smudge smudges on their shirts. And the orange pill was 40 milligram and the, and the green was 80. And what they were doing is they were putting them in their mouths 
and melting the coating, which was had the time release mechanism in it, and then crushing it or just chewing it even to get the full bump. And um, they would, you know, they would wipe that coating off on their shirts. And so it was pretty obvious to people in the community that this is what it was being not only diverted, but also um, abused, not used correctly. And then sort of the company, when when it would get asked by various states attorney general, you know, what's happening with this drug? Um, we're seeing a lot of crime. They would always blame it on the users for misusing it. Boy, this is an area where, you know, people didn't even lock their doors. When did all that change? It changed almost immediately. Um, the drug came out in 1996. I think by 1997, a quarter of the high school in Lee County, uh, the high school seniors had reported trying it. Um, and as I said earlier, just crime at a level. I mean, somebody down the street from Dr. Manzi's house was murdered because he was trying to break into the house to seal pills that he had seen um, the woman of the house put on the on the shelf above her sink and he could see him from outside and you know they thought he was breaking in and they shot him and killed him um it was it was almost right away and so that's why dr manzi starts writing letters early on he says my fear is that these distressed rural areas are sentinel areas the way new york and san francisco were in the early years of hiv and of course, he was so prescient. Dr. Art Van Zee, who's practiced medicine for 25 years in Pennington Gap, Virginia, was one of the first in the region to warn of the dangers of OxyContin. He shared what he witnessed when OxyContin first made its way into the community. As you know, it was uh, that the new drug application for OxyContin went to the FDA in 1995 and then was approved and then was released on the market in '96. And we really never saw, you know, much of it for a few years until it was uh, 1999, kind of late 1999, that we started seeing all these problems, um, you know, related to related to OxyContin, which was primarily young people getting addicted to OxyContin, and. Uh, and then it, it, you know, the problem grew and it just became overwhelming, overwhelming for the re available resources there were to deal with, deal with the problem. Um, and so by, by 2000, it was, um, you know, it was huge in our, our region. I was seeing I was seeing a lot of young people that I'd watched, you know, I'd watch grow up from kids and. We'd been involved with their families and parents and their grandparents, uh, so sometimes involved with families for three generations, and and uh, these young people were getting uh, addicted. Come sometimes coming to me for help. Sometimes I was talking to their parents or their their grandparents who were uh, just heartbroken and and trying to get help for uh, the kids. 
This Cover 2 podcast is sponsored by Relink.org. Relink.org is an online research tool that allows you to quickly locate addiction recovery and reentry resources in your area. It includes everything from treatment to housing and employment. Go to Relink.org today to find services or add a resource for free. With Relink.org, help is just three clicks away. Next, Dr. Van Zee shares some disturbing information he learned from the new drug application, or NDA, on OxyContin. I had, uh, I, I, all this was new ground to me, but uh, I found out that there was such a thing as a new drug application for drugs going to the FDA, and I thought this would be valuable information for us to have. So, um, so she was able to get me this new drug application for OxyContin. Dr. Van Zee talks about the OxyContin NDA that his wife, Sue Ellen Kobach, tracked down and gave to him as a Christmas gift. And that was, you know, that was very revealing um, for a lot of things. For for one thing, they, they have sections where, um, so, so going through the process of a new drug application, they have a lot of different uh, specialists and scientists look at a drug, do it, uh, check it in many different ways for basic safety and efficacy. They review all the the industry studies and then, you know, determine that they were a, a, a good science and and that this drug is a, a, a effective and a safe drug to be on the market. So. Um, they have one of the sections, certainly for control drugs, is looking at, uh, uh, you know, what the potential for abuse and addiction of a of a drug is, and and uh, so Purdue had had to do its own studies of uh, of oxic uh, of the abuse of their oxycontin, and and so they they did, and you could tell from. Uh, uh, from their studies where they would basically, you know, pulverize the drug and then uh, 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 sift it or strain it through cotton and then see how much of your oxycodone is recoverable from that. And like 68% of the oxycodone was recoverable through that. So, So that was, you know, concerning in and of itself. But that's exactly the way that OxyContin, you know, came to be abused is, you know, getting um, the covering off and then crushing it. The uh, claim was that it's thought to be less addictive because of its slow um, absorption uh, as opposed to a drug that's it's more rapidly absorbed and has a more rapid peak to the to the brain. Um, addiction uh, potential is higher for any drug that has a, 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 a rapid uh, peak to the brain. So, um, no, they 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 just um, you know put forth that they thought that it was believed that. Uh, addiction potential was less. In another interesting note to the new drug application, it wouldn't come to light for years, but a number of FDA regulators and big pharma executives 
had been quietly holding private meetings at expensive hotels, at least annually since 2002, through a drug industry-funded nonprofit. The meetings led to the development of Enriched Enrollment, an aptly named practice that allows drug companies to weed out people from their studies who didn't respond well to their drugs, therefore tipping the balance towards FDA approval of new drugs and away from science. What were the other revelations that you found in that NDA that you found so powerful? Well, it was interesting that the uh, medical review officer, uh, you know, basically signed off on it. Or was a, a physician named Curtis Wright, Dr. Curtis Wright, and you know his conclusions in looking at all the studies was that um, it was, uh, you know, that oxycontin appeared to be as as effective as four times daily oxycodone, which was the uh, shorter-acting oxycodone that we had on the market um, already. It wasn't, more, uh, it wasn't more effective. It wasn't a superior thing, but it appeared to be as effective. And in fact, he had one little uh, a statement in one section where something to the effect of care should be taken to limit competitive uh, production or promotion or something like that um, so and and you know that was kind of um, in contradistinction to a lot of the general uh, hype uh, around oxycontin it was you know a, a superior uh, formulation and you know was going to give everybody's life back and and that kind of aura that was uh, uh, promoted, not just by the company, but by, you know, uh, uh, speakers or or the press, you know. So it was kind of had that sense about it that this was, but but the, the you know, if you looked at all the studies, I mean, basically um, studies that compared four times daily oxycodone to to oxycontin, it was comparable. You know, there wasn't a, 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 a superior drug. So Dr. Curtis Wright had left the FDA um, about two years after. I think it's about two years after uh, after oxycontin came on the market, and Purdue hired him um, to work. Uh, you know, at Purdue. And uh, and that's you know basically what I knew for for many years, and I was astonished by that 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 somebody who could that that it seemed to me such an enormous conflict of interest that a a physician who could have such a pivotal role in bringing a, a drug which could turn into a blockbuster drug to the market. Um, could could be hired in just a short time by the same company that he oversaw the the drug approval process, and we don't have any um, you know we don't have any data that there was that there was illegal activity there, but it is just a situation that is so much fertile ground for there to be. <laughs> um, 
you know, conflict of interest and corruption. So that I mean, that's part of the part of the system that that needs to change. Is that there? You know, there shouldn't be. Um, presumably, that was legal to hire. Um, you know, somebody from the FDA in such a, a manner, and and we're all aware of this kind of revolving door between industry and government in in many different sectors. But I, you know, I think it it is just common sense and uh, protective of the public health to have. Um, you know, some kind of barriers for that not to happen. You know, whether it's, um, you know, it can be thought about hard, you know, what would be a reasonable time period, but, you know, whether it's 10 years that you have to be, um, you know, away from before you join the industry or, or whatever, but it certainly seems um, that two years is is insufficient time to to uh, mitigate potential conflict of interest issues. And then the other thing, so we knew that for years and years, but also we found out through Barry Meyer's uh, book that was published in June uh, 2018 that uh, Curtis Wright was, you know, his I think his package for the first year he was hired by Purdue was does something on the order of $376,000, which is, you know, an um, impressive figure. Next, Beth shares how Dr. Van Zee organized with others to fight Purdue Pharma. Yeah, um, well, he and some of the other early parents who had lost children started organizing. There was an IT uh, worker in Philadelphia named Ed Bish who had lost his son, Eddie. Um, in 2001, he was 18, about to graduate from high school, and um, he had, you know, had been called home late at night, and Eddie had overdosed and died, and the par- paramedics said, you know, uh, I'm sorry, he's dead, and he said, what did he take? And they said, he took an oxy, and he said, the first time I heard the word oxycontin, my son was dead from it. So he sort of channeled his grief into computer code, and this was before the internet was big, and so this was back when message boards were happening. So he starts, he reaches out to Van Z, he reaches out to um, some parents who have lost children in others area, the other areas of the country. There's um, a professor in California named Barbara Van Royen who had lost her son. Um, Patrick, uh, similarly, he had just taken one Oxycontin and they start organizing. Sister Beth Davies, who works with Dr. Van Z, she starts helping organize. And before you know it, they're feeding, they're not only like sort of having this public grieving on their message board and tribute to their dead children, but they're also sharing news and tidbits. And then they start feeding information about um, crime in other parts of the country to this nascent federal investigation that's happening uh, based in Roanoke, here where I'm, where I'm based in Virginia, where the U.S. Attorney John Brownlee has decided to investigate Purdue for criminal misbranding. And so this group of parents, Dr. Benzi and Sister Beth, they start helping. Um, these investigators out and helping them gather information because 
you know, it just wasn't as easy then because the internet wasn't, you know, as widespread. And um, I remember, I mean, I just got chills like early on in the story when Dr. Van Zee has a young doctor like interning at his practice and he goes home to see his parents in, um, in New England and he comes home with the Boston Globe, which is an article about Machias, Maine, and all the crime that's happening there because of OxyContin. And Dr. Van Zee and Sister Beth went, oh my gosh, that's us. That's exactly us. We thought we were the only ones. Wow. So the whole community, Dr. Van Zee, as, as well as Sister Beth, and the rest of the community united in this crusade to really bring Purdue Pharma to task on this. Yeah, yeah, and it was it, it was beyond just you know Appalachia. They were reaching out to all areas where it was happening, but they were really kind of seeing the worst of it because because um, the economics were also you know just so so much despair there, D- diseases of despair, you know, which w- was a uh, a term coined in 2015 with uh, the Nobel winning economist Deaton and Case, but. This is much earlier than that. But this is the same kind of thing going on. This concludes the first of our multi-part series on Dopesick with New York Times writer and best-selling author Beth Macy. Tune in next time to hear about Purdue Pharma's practice of training salespeople that some patients might only appear to be addicted when in fact they're just in pain. According to Purdue Pharma, this issue was known as pseudo-addiction. The cure for pseudo-addiction? More opioids. My name is Greg McNeil. I'm from Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.